Be with us, Lord, we pray, as we open your word. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that we might know your truth and do your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Many of you will be familiar with stories that capture for us the difference between cats and dogs. One popular story is that because you feed and you pat a dog, that he thinks you're God. And if you feed and care for a cat, he thinks that he's God. Now I actually think that that's a fairly good summation of our relationship with cats and dogs. And though we might laugh at that and can see the folly in a cat's thinking, perversely we can easily think of God in the same way. When God reaches down in grace and blesses us as individuals, and, or even as a nation, we don't easily recognise his providence. But we don't normally want to credit him with our success. Instead, we put it down to good fortune. We're the lucky country. We work hard. We might even have a sense of entitlement. Israel, in the middle of the 8th century BC, were in pretty much the same situation as we are now. Jeroboam II was king at the time. The boundaries of Israel had been restored to what they were in Solomon's day. Trade routes were open and wealth flooded into the country. With an easy life and lots of money, Israel started to treat God with indifference, if not contempt. Like a cat with its master, they traded places with God. In their eyes, it was God who was domesticated and tame. He was there to fulfil their needs, but not to be taken too seriously. And into this situation, God sends the prophet Amos, who gets straight down to it in verse 2, chapter 1. He describes God as a lion, roaring from Zion and thundering from Jerusalem. He doesn't sound domesticated, cute and cuddly. He actually sounds angry and ready for judgment. Now we know that God hates sin and will judge it. And as we shall see soon, he especially hates sin among those who should know better. For when he brings judgment upon the nations, he seems to do so at three levels. Firstly, from verses 3 to 10, against Israel's neighbours, Damascus, Gaza and Tyre. God judges them for taking up arms against his people. But secondly, from verses 11 to chapter 2, verse 3, against Israel's cousins, Edom, Ammon and Moab. And God judges them for fighting against each other and against Israel. But it's against Judah and Israel, from verse 4 to 16 in chapter 2, that God reserves his greatest condemnation. They were guilty of disobedience and idolatry. They were guilty of greed and injustice, perversion and sacrilege. They were guilty of persecuting God's prophets and reducing them to silence. These are the people that God brought out of Egypt and for 40 years led them in the desert. These are the people from whom God raised up his prophets. These are the people that should have known better. 
The nations had sinned against their conscience, and God judges them for that. But Judah and Israel were sinning against their God, the God who clearly revealed himself to them, the God who loved them as a father loves his family. So God says to them in chapter 3, from verse 1, he says, Hear this, people of Israel, the word of the Lord has spoken against you, Against the whole family I brought you up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen. Of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your sins. Clearly God is no pussycat. The Lion of Judah has roared and he's to be feared and obeyed. Have a look at verse 8 in chapter 3. The Lion has roared, who will not fear? The Sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy. This good but unsafe and untamed God is to be feared and obeyed, and he will bring judgment. Certainly he'll judge the nations, but especially he'll judge those that should have known better. And there's two things about God's judgment that I want you to notice. Firstly, God uses the surrounding nations to judge Israel. Have a look from verse 9 in chapter 3. Proclaim to the fortress of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. These are the mountains overlooking Israel. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They, Israel, do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. They hoard plunder and loot in their fortresses. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun the land. He will pull down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. Now, God might have judged Israel by raining down fire and brimstone. But in this instance, he's using natural consequence to punish them. Wealth and ease had made them indifferent. Sin had made them weak. And now God is using the nations as instruments of judgment against Israel. Now the second thing I want you to notice is that despite Israel's sin and God's wrath, that judgment is not inevitable that there's still a way out. And three times in chapter 5, we're told how. In verses 4 and 6, God says to Israel, Seek me and live. And then in verses 14 and 15, we read this. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Repentance was their only chance. And until the final day of the Lord, repentance will always be the intention of God's judgment. God is not willing that any should perish. God's judgment is always meant for good. So what does God's judgment look like? Well, Amos has given six visions of God's judgment 
from chapters 7 to 9. And his first vision is a swarm of locusts. And when Amos sees the vision, he asks the Lord to forgive, and he does. The second vision is fire, and again the Lord shows mercy. And after the third vision of a plumb line, in verse 8, God's patience has run out. And God says, I'll spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed, and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword I'll raise, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. In the fourth vision, Israel has become like a basket of ripe fruit. In fact, Israel were overripe. Have you ever left the banana in your school bag over the holidays? Have you ever found an orange at the bottom of a fruit bowl covered with blue-green moulds? I've done both. And that's what Israel were like. And the Lord says of them in verse 2 of chapter 8, The time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The fifth vision was of a famine in Israel. And it wasn't lack of food or water. It was a famine for the lack of God's word. But the famine was actually sent by God. When the prophets were silenced and people refused to listen, God refused to let them hear. So God says in verse 11, The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. In the sixth and final vision in chapter 9, Amos sees the Lord by the altar. Unrelenting judgment is about to be unleashed. And so we read in verse 8, Surely the eyes of the Sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. And at this point, just as Israel seems to be without hope, the Lord says, Yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. It seems that God will always preserve a faithful remnant of his people. Though Israel will be judged, shaken like grain through a sieve, the faithful few, like pebbles in a sieve, will not hit the ground. Have a look at verse 9. For I will give the command and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. Those that do hit the ground and as grain shaken through a sieve they are those that are judged. They're the sinners among God's people. They're the nation that should have known better. Instead of fearing God, they treated him like a tame pet. Instead of warning of the judgment to come, they insisted that there is no judgment. God's not like that, they say. He's a God of love. He wouldn't do that because he's kind and gentle. We have nothing to fear from God, they say. So the Lord says in verse 10, all the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say, disaster will not 
overtake or meet us. So who are God's pebbles sifted from the grain? And what's become of them? Well, the pebbles are the faithful remnant of Israel. They're those who are part of God's eternal kingdom, which he promised to David. Have a look at what God says in verse 11 and 12. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent, his kingdom. I'll repair its broken places and restore its ruins and will build it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Now I want you to listen to the next bit of the sentence because it describes who else will be included among the faithful remnant and that is all the nations that bear God's name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. Now this verse is really important because in AD 49, at the Council of Jerusalem, 16 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Apostle James, the President of the Council, quotes this verse from Amos. And he declares that it's fulfilled by the inclusion of the Gentiles among the people of God. So despite the, necess the necessary and severeness of God's judgment, grace always has the last word. Despite the unfaithfulness of his people, God remains ever faithful to his promises. Sin will not destroy God's plan. And God's plan, for nearly 3,000 years since Amos was written, well, it hasn't changed at all. So I guess it's worth asking, where do we, the Gentiles, included as God's people, where do we fit into that plan? Well, as individuals, we're at the centre of God's plan if we belong to Christ. By faith, we're born again into God's kingdom. And it has nothing to do with being an Anglican or any other denomination. And it has everything to do with where Jesus is in our life. And if he's king in our life, then we can, we can consider ourselves to be pebbles in God's sieve. As for the church and our nation, where do they fit into God's plan? Well, if by church we mean everyone who calls himself a Christian, then the best way to think of the church is as a paddock of wheat, which is full of weeds. The weeds can't be pulled out without destroying some of the wheat. So for now, they grow together. But come harvest, they'll be separated. The weeds to be burned and the wheat to be gathered in. And it's not always easy to tell the weeds from the wheat. The obvious weeds in the church are those who deny the virgin birth and the resurrection. And sadly, this sort of nonsense is likely to come from a bishop more so than a parishioner. Some in the church will deny the existence of hell and judgment. It's like they've never read their Bibles. Or they think that Jesus, unlike them, is simply ignorant and naive. They've traded places with God. 
They think he's tame, he's cute and he's cuddly. Disaster will not overtake us or meet us, they'll confidently tell you. And that's for our nation. It's hard not to conclude that we're already under God's judgment. Along with Western Europe, we are among the nations that should know better. And though I do not think that there's any such thing as a Christian nation, so much of our history and our heritage has been undeniably Christian. Despite this, we're showing all the signs of being under God's judgment. Natural wealth and rising standards of living have not made us more conscious of God's goodness to us. Instead, we're suffering from what Clive Hamilton calls affluenza. It's a condition we develop when too much is never enough. In his 2005 book, Hamilton argues that the Western world is in the grip of a consumption binge, unique in human history. We aspire to the lifestyles of the rich and famous at the cost of family and friends and personal fulfilment. At rates of stress and loneliness and depression and obesity are up as we wrestle with the emptiness and the endless disappointments of the consumer life. And Hamilton does not speak as a Christian. He simply speaks as an observer. It seems to me we no longer know how to be happy. Materialism hasn't worked, so we look to the Dalai Lama to tell us. Or we look deep within ourselves and we peel back the layers hoping to find the real self. But it's empty and it's dark. The only place that most people haven't looked or refuse to look is in God's word. There's a famine of God's word in our nation. Do you remember that out on TV when this fellow walks into the shop and he asks for some milk and the lady lists off about 20 different varieties and he says, I I just want real milk. Well, if you go online to Koran catalogue and simply print in Bible, you'll get a huge variety. There's every translation you can imagine. There's the NIV, the CEV, the KGV, the ESV, the RSV, the NASB and the HCSB. There's the Preacher's Bible, the Worshipper's Bible, the Spirit-filled Believer's Bible, the Women's Bible, the Devotional Bible, the Left-Handed Ball Gypsy Fiddler's Bible, with versions for the nearsighted and farsighted. I I made that last bit up. (laughs) You can get it in hardback, paperback, leather, cloth, in pink, red, oxblood, turtle shell, iridescent orange and psychedelic paisley. You can get maps and charts and indices and concordances and holograms of the temple in the back and a little sleeve with a CD-ROM that takes you on a guided tour of the Holy Land. As for my personal favourite, it has to be the large print Holy Bible. Despite the variety and the abundance of Bibles in our nation, there's a drought when it comes to hearing God's Word. Though the majority of Australians claim to believe in God, and many still refer to themselves as Christians, they're not hearing God's word in church, they're not reading God's word at home, that God's name is not a part of their conversation unless they're swearing, 
And the Christian worldview is ridiculed, marginalised or excluded from the public conversation. This shift from indifference to hostility, it's happened really suddenly. Certainly within a generation or two at most. And so sudden has it been, it makes me think that this is not simply a victory of evil over good. This seems to be a judgement. As people refuse to listen to God's word, God refuses to let them hear it. Now, I can't think of a more ominous judgment than that, to be shut off from God's word, the words of eternal life. And as the Christian West declines, it should not surprise us that we're being surrounded by the rising influence of Islam and the rapidly growing powers of India and China. And in the global order, we are small players, demographically, economically and militarily. Perhaps once again, God's judge in a nation that should have known better. Perhaps he's surrounding us, as he did Israel, with powerful neighbours that do not uniformly share our desire for a liberal democracy and don't share a Christian worldview. Now, I don't want to finish on a note of gloom or despair. But rest assured that the Lord sits enthroned over all. From heaven he laughs and he scoffs at his enemies. He's installed his king, his beloved son, and has made the nations his inheritance, the ends of the earth his possession. And if Christ is king in our lives, then we are among the faithful remnant pebbles in God's sieve and heirs in God's kingdom. If we're true to God's word, reading it often, trusting it, believing it and obeying it, then we are a faithful church. But we're wheat among the tares, waiting to be gathered into God's barn. And if as a nation we heed the warning of Amos, and we hate evil and love good, and we maintain justice in the courts, who knows? Perhaps the Lord Almighty will have mercy on us as he did the remnant of Joseph. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, that though you're not safe, you are good. And it is your goodness that blesses us as a nation, a church, and as individuals. We ask you, Lord, to forgive us when we forget your faithfulness and your holiness, and treat you as someone who's there for our benefit and at our convenience. As individuals, help us to put our trust in Jesus alone, and not in ourselves, our possessions, or our talents. As a church, help us to remain faithful to the truth of your gospel, reading your word daily and obeying it humbly. As a nation, we ask that you open our eyes to your providence, open our ears to your word, and open our hearts to your gospel of grace. Have mercy upon us. Do not judge us according to your holiness and wrath. Do not give us justice according to what we deserve but grant unto us repentance and faith, 
and pour out upon us the unmerited and unlimited grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.